Hey everyone, it's Aaron Fritz and Chris Beck. We've been working on something new and exciting for our colleagues and trainees. Quick story, last year I had read somewhere that the volume of medical information doubles every 73 days. 73 days. It hit me that it's really difficult to keep up and it got me thinking about Backtable. We are getting good practical knowledge from our podcast, but there's room for improvement in them as an educational resource. We felt like we owed it to you, our audience, to build on the podcast to address this need. And that's what we're doing with Backtable Plus. Exactly, Aaron. Backtable Plus is for doctors who are seeking to elevate their practice and sharpen their skills by learning from their peers. We've created focused, curated courses on interventional and endovascular procedures vetted by Backtable's network of practicing experts. And we're really proud to be able to share that with you all. It's live now at backtable.com. Tap the link and just click on courses at the top. Yeah. In addition to getting this information in a concise course format, you get CME for it. I figured we're educating ourselves constantly online. It sure would be nice to get credit for it. Partnering with CME if I made this happen. There are three years worth of CME credits already live in the platform today. These courses are live right now. Find the link or type in backtable.com and click the tab that says courses. And that's it. We also made a mobile app and you can grab that from either Apple or Android's app store as well. Couple more things. From now until SIR in late March, users will get 50% off of the annual subscription, a great way to use your education funds. And the first 25 physicians to sign up, you guessed it, a signature limited edition Backtable Plus hoodie. Only a few of these, so get them while you can. Can't wait to see you there. Just go to backtable.com and click on courses at the top. This week on the Backtable Podcast. The indications for this procedure can get very vague because a lot of catheters and devices and people will have sort of what looks like a suspicious clot. And the literature goes one way or the other, particularly on free-floating clot. It used to be thought that it's going to break off and go somewhere. Realistically, a true clot in transit, you're more likely to see in somebody with tricuspid stenosis. In reality, something's stuck somewhere. You know, is it really worth it to put them through this and go through this procedure? Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things endovascular or otherwise minimally invasive. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Backtable.com. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, or reach out to us on Twitter or email to let us know how we can make this a more valuable resource for the endovascular community. Now a quick word from our sponsor. Inari Medical Incorporated is a medical device company focused on developing products to treat and transform the lives of patients suffering from venous diseases. Inari has developed two minimally invasive, novel, catheter-based mechanical thrombectomy devices that are designed to remove large clots from large vessels. The company purpose-built its products for the specific characteristics of the venous system and the treatment of the two distinct manifestations of venous thromboembolism, or VTE, deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary embolism. The clot retriever system is 510K cleared by FDA and CE Mark approved for the treatment of deep vein thrombosis. The flow retriever system is 510K cleared by FDA and CE Mark approved for the treatment of pulmonary embolism and clot in transit in the right atrium. And now back to the show. This is Michael Barraza returning as your host. I'm joined by Dr. Rahan Quadri at UT Southwestern Medical Center. Thanks for joining us, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to talk about thrombectomy. Yeah, we're going to talk about thrombectomy and specifically treating uh, clot in transit. But before we start doing that, I, I want to hear a little bit about UT Southwestern. It, it's kind of interview season right now. And, uh, a lot of our listeners are, are trainees. And so I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about the training program at UT Southwestern. Yeah. So at the moment right now, we have, well, I guess, four IRDR and two independent, two to four per year. 
And everybody rotates at three different hospitals. There's the main hospital at Clements. There's Parkland Hospital, sort of the traditional trainee location, and then Children's as well. And uh, for the most part, I would say the volume is very spread across the entire board of cases from biliary to transplant. We get some aortic and PAD work, obviously not as much as we'd like, but we do have a good relationship with vascular surgery. And um, we do a lot of wavelength and we do a lot of PE and DVT work as well. And then the IO stuff is very well organized and run. So I feel like the trainees get a very good experience. It is kind of a beat down. It's a lot of call. It's a lot of work, but that's what I wanted as a fellow. And so that's what I tell people. I'm like, it's, you know, time consuming, but worthwhile. Look, you only have so much time to learn IR. And, you know, one thing that's unique about this specialty, it's always changing and it's every part of the body. And so everybody knows you go into your first job and you're doing stuff you've never done before. And so the people that I talk to, the ones that I'm advising, I tell them you want to beat down, you want to be busy. And it sounds like it's, you know, it's a pretty diverse training program in terms of what you guys see. Yeah. And I try and along those lines, always give the trainees like the core fundamental skills in every case. So it's access, wire catheter skills, ultrasound skills, fluoro skills, CT skills. We have hybrid suites with CT and fluoroscopy, but at the same time, we try and give them exposure to stuff if they end up working in a place where they don't have the technology that a big academic center has as well. So they get sort of the tools to accommodate to any sort of situation, whether or not they've seen this minute pathology that's very nuanced or not, they'll be able to handle it when they get to it. You know, it sounds like there's some flexibility too. You know, I have to kick a shout out to my guy, Devin Moody from your program, who's joining my practice. And we do a lot of neuro work and, uh, you know, he, he's been able to arrange, you know, some elective time looking at some neuro interventions and, and stuff like that to get him ready to start out on the right foot. But all in all, it sounds like a really comprehensive, great training program. And Dallas is, is a good place to live, man. Yeah, it's awesome. So I got into IR because my neighbor was a neurointerventionalist. And this was back in Maryland. And I went to football camp and one of the guys I played with, I was like, I don't have a summer job. And he goes, oh, well, my neighbor's a neurointerventional radiologist. So I was like, really? He was like, you want to just come with me? So I went. And I was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. I was like, I think I'm going to do this. After that, I was like, sold. I was like, I'm going to do this. Then when I was at UT, the nice part is you can rotate on neuro IR. You can rotate on body. You can rotate on vascular. You can actually, we do a rotation with vascular surgery. So they get to do a lot of fevars. And so they get kind of like the gambit of experience. Nice. Right on. Well, you know, we got a lot of trainees out there. Listen, apply. And uh, I guess it's about that time, right? For sure. Well, let's talk about clot and transit. I know you guys are doing a lot of thrombectomy type work for DVT, PE. Let me just start by saying, what the hell is clot and transit, Rayhan? <laughs> <laughs> so the definition is rather vague. So traditionally, what you think about in the worst case scenario is sort of like the washing machine clot. So there's a piece of clot that's in the RA or in the RV and it's just sort of bouncing around. And it, the next step is to go to the PA, depending upon what the size it is and depending upon if they already have clot in the lungs or not, the mortality can be like up to 30 to 40%. Wow. You know, most papers will quote it at 29, some will quote it at higher than that. So it's something that generally has been thought of as like an emergent problem. 
But then there's also the notion of clot and transit being something that's partially adherent, whether it's to the wall of the vein, whether it's to the valve, to the atrial wall, or to the most common thing we see is like a catheter or device, pacer leads, different kinds of things like that, and particularly dialysis catheters. Some people call it clot and transit. Or they'll use the term free-floating thrombus. Yeah, that, I've heard that more frequently in, in clot and transit. I'm starting to hear more about now. Yeah, yeah. And traditionally, they say it's supposed to be in the RA or in the heart, but it can actually be in the cava. But it's very rare that you would catch it in the cava because at that point, it'd probably end up in the cardiac chambers. Okay. How is it traditionally diagnosed? I would say the most common is echo. And not infrequently, it's uh, finding on an echo when you're trying to categorize a PE, and when they get the transthoracic echo, they'll notice in the RA that there's a, they'll call it an echogenic mobile density. And uh, the other time you see it is incidentally on CTAs. And then I haven't really seen it diagnosed. I'm sure this happens, but at the time of a pulmonary embolectomy or thrombectomy, I'm sure they see it on that sure. as well, you know? I was going to ask you, you know, when you look for it, but I guess in most circumstances, when you're dealing with like a heavy clot burden with pulmonary emboli, you're going to be getting an echo anyway, right? Or do you ever specifically go about looking for clot in transit? So for most of our PE cases, so we've done about 13 clot in transit cases total. Because we see it a lot in the Parkland population and also in the Clements population, it is something that the cardiologists look for more when we get echoes in the setting of PE. But a common reason that we've had in our case series is actually catheter malfunction. And so then we'll get a x-ray and then we'll, they'll do a venogram potentially, or they've exchanged the catheter a couple times, not sure what's going on. Somebody will get a CTV or CTA because in a combination with the catheter malfunction, they have SVC syndrome-like symptoms, swelling, and then you end up seeing it on the CTA, which is hard because you really have to get a good venous phase. And that timing is difficult. So then you end up getting an echo to really confirm it. So how does this factor into your treatment algorithm for treating PEs or other venous thromboembolism conditions where you're going to be thinking about doing a thrombectomy? Are you ever going in and just treating the clot in transit? Or is it typically in conjunction with the treatment of a PE? So it's both. So the first case we did, the patient actually had a dialysis catheter and they had about a, what measured 2.8 centimeters on the transthoracic echo. It was basically like a lollipop clot coming off. And it was connected to a fibrin sheath, but that wasn't apparent on the echo. They just kind of saw the clot bouncing around in the RA. So they called it a clot in transit and they did have PE. And the PEs were relatively small and peripheral, but their problem was recurrent PE malfunction of the catheter, and at instances, the catheter getting infected frequently. And so in that setting, we went in, took out the clot in transit, but the PE being relatively small and peripheral, we didn't actually go for it. And actually, the PE resolved with heparinization. Yeah, it makes sense. You don't want a 2.8 centimeter clot going through into the pulmonary arteries. I mean, that, that's going to be a normal-sized PA. It's going to be occlusive. Yeah, basically. And, and Across the spectrum, the one thing I've learned is, you know, people rip out catheters all the time and fibrin sheets are probably left there. Does it matter in most cases? People say no, but honestly, we don't really know in a lot of instances. You know, you don't necessarily see that person come back to your institution for the problem or different things. So we're just trying to figure that process out. And uh, we send a lot of the clots for PATH as well. Do you? 
Yeah. So almost all of them are mixed. The clot in transit or the PE as well? The PE is usually acute. And then the clot in transit is usually mixed. That's very interesting. Yeah. It'll harbor there for a while. And the mixed part sometimes is that the entirety of the clot is chronic and then there's a small piece that's acute. Or it's like the distribution is hard to get when we send the path, but they generally will say, yes, there's more than just acute stuff. They'll say there's fibrin, basically. There's organization to it. That makes sense. So let's talk about for a minute how you treat them. What are you usually using for treating these? So it's interesting. Like The first time I was asked to do this was uh, we have a cardiothoracic surgeon who actually does cardiac transplants, Dr. Huffman. He is like extremely well-versed in angiovac. And uh, there was a consult that was sent to both of us for a malfunctioning dialysis catheter and a clot in transit. And he was like, this guy's a dialysis patient. He's like, putting this guy on VV ECMO is going to be a nightmare. Um, He's like, I'm not going to be able to get the cannulas in. He's like, well, I mean, we can do it. But realistically, this is like a borderline clot. It's stuck to a fibrin sheath. It's not a true clot in transit. But it's concerning. And so I just had a conversation. I said, look, in training when I was at UVA, I worked with Dr. Kaja, Dr. Haskell, and then all the attendings there did a ton of advanced thrombectomy work. And, you know, I'm really lucky that they were able to teach me these skills and how to sort of navigate these problems. So I said, you know, now there's a 24 French Inari catheter. Before that, it was only 20. I said, you know, technically, I mean, we can get it's eight millimeters, but in reality, these clots are relatively spongy. So even though it's 2.8 on the echo, there's probably some magnification there. So we got a CTA and it was ranging from like 1.5 to 2.8. And then having done a lot of iliocaval thrombectomies with Haskell and Kaja, I was like, you know, we've taken out significant pieces of clot in one fail swoop. I was like, you know, I think I can get this, but I would just need either transesophageal echo or I would need a ice catheter. And so I chose to go ice and Huffman was like, look, I'll back you up. Anything happens, you let me know. That's awesome. It's so great going into a case like that. Yeah, I know. He's he's awesome. And he's this huge dude and he's just so reassuring. <laughs> he's got this really, really comforting like vibe to him. So when we were looking at the case, he was like, nah, don't worry about it. You'll be fine. He's like, it'll come out. That's awesome. <laughs> he's like, you'll get it out there. Yeah. Because he's taken out stuff through Angiovec that's like four centimeters. Yeah, but it's it's so fun. Like getting getting to do something you've never done before. You know, not a lot of people are out there doing. It. I mean, that's what makes this job so fun. Like it, that's one of the best parts. Yeah, and and the fact that the guy was in a real bind, you know, and then ended up doing very well after the situation was was good, you know. And then also having like great colleagues at the time. Uh, actually, Joseph McLaughlin was there. He was one of our former faculty. He went to Wisconsin, and I said, you know what do you think? And he goes, I don't know, but I'm in. <laughs> and I was like, all right, <laughs> let's, awesome. let's do this. So what'd you use? So we went in with the 24 French Inari. Do you use a flow retriever? Yeah, we used the flow retriever. And then at that time, they had just come out with the flex, which was, we didn't necessarily need the flex, but it was extremely helpful. You know, in our heads, we were like, oh, it potentially could accommodate more than what we thought, and we could potentially angle if we need to by bending the wire, putting the wire in the PA, and getting a right trajectory. And then we decided to go with ice. So we have we have St. Jude, uh, and then we also have Acunav. And so I like the St. Jude catheter, but they're both, in the end of the day, the same functionality. So the first thing we did was 
got a left groin access, had to partially recan the veins because they were pretty stenotic. Why left instead of right? So I put the ice in the left groin. Oh, okay. okay, Yeah. For the ice. So the first thing I do is I evaluate the clot and I establish a baseline because I want to make sure that I got the entirety of it and there's nothing left. Totally. Since his issue was kind of recurrent PE, recurrent infections, catheter malfunction, I was like, we actually need to clear the majority of this. So we took several Sinite clips. And also it's good to just get your landmarks down before you bring your catheter in. Because the one fear that we did have was that uh, if we break off the clot as the catheter is advancing in, that's not ideal. So using the ice, we were able to, because on one hand, you could put a wire through the catheter, get a through and through access, and then the catheter would be directly in line when you bring up the flow retriever, and then you could do your pulls that way. But there's a chance that the wire could knock off the clot. After doing 13 of these, the likelihood of that is not as high as I thought it was. But in the first one, we decided to get a wire up very carefully with ice guidance. We went into the right subclavian. It was a right IJ TDC. And then that gave us a nice directionality along the course. And then we put in a 24 French Gore dry seal. We used a 65 centimeter. He was a pretty tall guy. And then we advanced the catheter up over super stiff amplats. The first wire we put in was a glide wire and then exchanged. The big thing with the ice is that, so I just kind of follow the traditional home view and then go from there. So I go up with the ice catheter pointed anteriorly. So a good landmark as you're entering. And for starters, since it's not over the wire, I use a 45 centimeter nine French sheath. So our ice is the eight French catheter, but I like to have a little bit of room around it. And then once it comes up, I make sure the catheter is pointed anteriorly as it enters the RA. So you can either use the eustachian ridge as your marker, which is this sort of echogenic line that shows up, and then you should see the tricuspid valve. So then you know you're in the RA, tricuspid valve, and RV. But one way you can confirm that if you want to is you can, before you come up from the cava, you can confirm which direction turning gets you aorta and which direction turning gets you liver. And then you can set clockwise to be that way. So then you know you're going interatrial septum or ventricular septum relative to free wall. And then from there, if you are worried that you're going to break off the clot or you can't see the clot, even with the standard uh, rotation of the catheter without adjusting the torque or the posterior anterior angulation, you can actually oftentimes just decrease the depth. It's that the depth is so large that you're not seeing what's in the near field very well. And then there is also a gain function on the ice catheters that I feel like, and and IR, we use it for tips mainly. And you're kind of just either the reps there or the techs there. And you're just like, can you fix this? Can you fix this? And they're kind of just messing with it, messing with it. So I spent a lot of time before we did this case, just getting comfortable with the settings. That's what I need to do. Yeah, that's what I really advise people to do. And the IFUs are great. The videos are great. The cardiology literature has a lot of stuff out there. The first time I did a tips with ice, I didn't have anybody, you know, with me who'd done it before. So the, the guy that, that came in for the case was like, this guy's going to make this so easy. All he was there for was like to turn on the system. He's like, oh, I've never actually seen one of these. It's like, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like, honestly, plug the biggest mistake people make is they break it as they're plugging it in and it doesn't connect properly and it wastes so much time in the case. And it's like, just... Look at the device, look at how it connects and locks before you put it in. Totally. And then definitely put a sterile probe over it for this particular case, just because 
you're going to be moving in and out quite a bit to adjust. So are you doing angiography as well, like either in the cave or the heart, or you, this is primarily using ice guidance? So initially, we were afraid to pressurize because on the Echo, their RVSP and their TAPSI was pretty high, unfortunately. So we weren't sure if they could tolerate much of an injection. And my colleague, Iona, she actually has had done a case of clot in transit with the flow retriever previously. She actually used TTE and had that same fear. And so uh, it was nice to have her advice. And so then when we went up, uh, we just thought, you know, better to not inject yet and then see if we can get it all done with ultrasound. If we needed to, we would have. We did end up doing a gentle puff of saline under the ice to see kind of how the clot moved. Cool. Um, and we're like, is this thing going to, yeah, is it going to pop off or not? And you'd be surprised, like, you know, every time anesthesia was like, oh, I'm going to give him some more meds, you'd see bubbles showing up in the RN. I was like, oh, I hope that's not too yeah. many. <laughs> you know, I mean, we confirmed that he didn't. That's another thing on the pre-op echo. You really need to confirm that they don't have a significant shunt, an intraatrial shunt. Yeah. So that's very important. I, I meant to ask you that, you know, either a shunt or just like a flat out, like a PFO. Are you looking for that, you know, before you start doing these? hundred percent. So what do you do if there's a shunt? We actually, there was a PE that one of my colleagues had to do. And in fact, there was a clot already across the PFO. No way. Plugging it. And it was hanging on the other side. Yeah. That seems bad. And so they went up, got the PE out, and then it went to cardiothoracic surgery and they had to close it up. The problem with closing it beforehand, if they have significant PE, so there's a interventional cardiologist and a ICU attending that I work very close with on our PE response team. And that team also, it's kind of more like a VTE response team. We basically look at all high-risk DVT and all high-risk PE. We talked it through and there's not a lot of literature on it because I guess after the COVID era, the volume of PE has drastically increased. So we see a lot of these shunts that open up and if you close it, they might go into right heart failure because that's partially decompressing the pressure. So we discussed with Luna, who's the uh, structural heart specialist, about closing them. And he said, I don't know if that's a great idea. We'd have to really look at it case by case, but he has definitely helped me out when we were trying to do bubble studies in the procedure as well. It's probably also hard to gauge what the, you know, the hemodynamic outcome of that is going to be when a lot of these patients also have big PEs. That's got to be challenging. So when you're actually doing the thrombectomy portion, when you're aspirating, like how are you evaluating that, you know, you got the clot? We finally line up the echo probe exactly where we want it. And then the one thing I will say is you want to rotate the echo to where your position is and then rotate it just a little more and then it will slide right back into place. And somebody just kind of has to man that. So usually the fellow is just holding that in place. And then from there, you make sure that your wire is in the trajectory of the clot with the echo. So you see it in the same plane. You like the angulation. And then we'll also do fluoroscopic continuous guidance as it's coming up. And I, I described this actually, it's funny, I actually said this to Devin once. I call it the Shamu sign. You just sort of see the Inari sort of pop up all of a sudden, and it's just this huge hunking thing coming up. Oh, and yeah. it's almost like Shamu launching over the, <laughs> the rocks. And it always makes me just say, God damn it, hell yeah. Because yes. when it's pointed right at it, right off the bat, 
you save so much time. I mean, you feel great. You know your poll's going to be successful. So the first case, we had that Shamu sign, and then we hit it, we ripped it, and the entire thing launched out. Like, Dude, that's awesome. The fibrin sheath along with the lollipop clot. Oh, cool. And so after that, you know, you're looking under Echo and seeing if anything's there, and it's gone, and you're cheering, and everyone's proud of you, and it's great. So what if you have to do a PE2? What order are you doing it? Is it clot and transit first or PE? Exactly. The clot and transit first, if the PE is not a massive. If it's a massive, then we go with the PE first. And very frequently, the clot and transit can be obtained with your wire position in the pulmonary arteries to begin with. Access is key here. So we're sticking everything we can for backup situations if necessary. So sometimes I'll even stick the left GSV and have a pigtail in the pulmonary artery as we're doing the case. That makes sense. Yeah. I forgot to mention this, but we always check the PA pressures prior to starting. So we'll check the PA pressure, we'll check an RV pressure, and either we'll use a, a swan gans sort of balloon float technique or not over the wire form pigtail push up to the PA and sort of do that traditionally in the beginning after we've done our ice evaluation of the clot. Does your equipment selection change if you think you're going to be doing both or if you're just going to be doing the clot and transit? I like the 24. I'm almost always putting in a 24 for a PE case. I feel like the 24 Flex has the best trackability. And through that, I'll just telescope 16 or I'll even put in a 20 curve. Even for the clot and transit cases, sometimes we put in a 20 curve, given up the wire, got it pointed right where we wanted it and pulled off some pretty chronic stuff. But yeah, I always start with a 24 flex. And then there is the new Protrieve sheath, which is kind of interesting. It's nice, especially for filter retrieval. Dr. Kaja actually used to do something similar at UVA. He would partially deploy a wall stent when we were doing CAVA cases. I haven't found an instance of it where I would use it in an in-transit clot that was already at the level of the heart. Right, because you may be going after stuff in the PAs anyway. Exactly. But if it was below the level, so there was one case where it was going from the hepatic veins into the RA. And I thought, you know, maybe we could have gone in with the protrieve sheet, sort of encased the clot in that funnel in case it broke off. And then also just been directly in line and done a pull. And you can do a pull through the protrieve sheet as well, which is nice. That's the only other addition, but usually it's 24 French Gore dry seal, bilateral groin access, at least, if not an IJ. And then we do dissect out the catheter just in case. And we're ready to go with potentially putting a wire through that if we need to. And then um, nine French sheath for the AccuNav. And then if we do do an IJ access, it's usually like a six French sheath for a pigtail. Yeah. So what happens next? You know, you get the clot out of the heart, maybe PAs or not. Where do you go from there? So... Everybody else in the room starts taking the most number of pictures I've ever seen in my life at that moment. And it drives me crazy. They're just like snapping photos, talking, but that's the most stressful moment for me. So the first thing I do is I measure the PA pressures and I make sure that they haven't changed. Uh, and if I need to take an RV pressure, I'll take an RV pressure. That's when I will usually inject after I've confirmed with the ice that there's nothing hanging around, I'm going to break off. And even at that moment, sometimes you can inject through the catheter, you know, if you feel really comfortable and you want to see if there's any sheath left, because that sheath is stuck. It's not coming out. If you pulled off what we call the lollipop at the end, the rest of it is going to be there. 
So you can more comfortably potentially inject through there. But I do usually inject through the Inari from below and maybe even the Gore Dry Seal. But then if I have a pigtail in the PA, I'll also do a PA gram. Once that's all good, then it's all about hemostasis or exchanging the catheter. One of the two things, yeah. One more question I'd forgotten to ask is, you know, have there been any particular cases that were especially challenging for one reason or the other? Talked about clot along the walls. I would imagine those are probably harder to get out than something that's just sitting, you know, along a TDC. Yeah. So the hardest case we had was a, she was like an elderly female that had had a port for about like three or four years. And the port had a 1.8 centimeter clot at the end of it. And it wasn't really mobile. It was almost stuck to the RA wall. And so two things came to mind. One, I was afraid of suctioning on the wall and then collapsing the RA or potentially pulling out the volume of the RA. In a male, like an adult male, your RA is like 60 to 120, maybe even 160 in volume if it's super dilated on the echo. So you know if you do a 60cc pull, you're probably not going to dump all the volume realistically. And the volume is not as big of a deal when I was talking to Huffman about it, because with Angiovac, he's like, we're just continuously pulling, even though, I mean, they do have the circuit putting blood back in, but at times if it's not matched, he's like, you're usually still fine. But then the bigger fear is that, are we going to collapse the RA walls and potentially send him into a complete loss of venous return and cardiac failure? But when I spoke to Huffman, he was like, the likelihood of that happening is extremely low. You know, we looked at the force and the suction of the catheter, and even though it's extremely strong, coapting the walls would be very, very difficult, um, just with the sheer size and morphology of the RA. Not saying that it's not theoretically possible and not saying that I didn't freak out about it. We did. And one way around it for this case is I intentionally used the 20 curve. So we took the ice from the contralateral IJ down in, visualized the clot, and we saw where the length of the catheter was and where it terminated. Then I went up with a wire up the ipsilateral IJ, took the 24 up, took the 20 curve up, unsheathed it. And the, the hardest part about this case was timing the unsheathing of the catheter and keeping it steady once it was pointed at the clot. Because the RA is in this female, even though she was like, a, you know, elderly, relatively small female, you would think it's smaller. But her RA was actually pretty dilated. So it was like kind of trying to find a needle in a haystack. And so finally, you know, you have two fellows holding one sheath, another fellow holding another sheath. I'm angling it this way. One person's holding the ice and it's just like pull, pull, pull. And you're just like, of course, there are several pulls without the clot in it. And this case, you know, the key to me being able to even accept it was the fact that we had the flow saver. So I was able to give her all the blood back. So prior to that, when I did cases as a fellow and watched Dr. Kaja, he was so careful about the number of pulls, where he pulled, how much volume he took. There was always blood in the room. I always have two units in the room, no matter what, anyways. But I would say that case was so challenging just because every device that you have in there interacts with the other device. So it can sometimes prevent or help your catheter be forced in a direction. So the key, yeah, was just kind of getting our wires angled correctly, getting our catheters angled correctly, and pushing whatever we needed to. Like sometimes people even inflate a balloon alongside the Inari to push it in a direction. And that's sort of, I guess, why that case was pretty tough. But we got it in the end, you know. That's what counts. All right. You know, what else do you want to talk about that I didn't cover? 
I guess the thing that I've learned at the end of this is, and I'm like obviously pretty new at this whole uh, attending gig being only two or three years out, which is the thing I love about UT Southwestern. I mean, you have so much support. We have like senior and junior people who have everyone's back. We all team together. It was like, you know, two or three attendings in every case, two or three fellows. Like the indications for this procedure can get very vague because a lot of catheters and devices and people will have sort of what looks like a suspicious clot. And the literature goes one way or the other, particularly on free floating clot. It used to be thought that it's going to break off and go somewhere realistically, a true clot in transit, you're more likely to see in somebody with tricuspid stenosis. In reality, something stuck somewhere. You know, is it really worth it to put them through this and go through this procedure? Like, yeah, it's a step down from angiovac. That was the whole point of why we created this, kind of to give an alternative. But what I found the best indications were, were recurrent PEs, recurrent infections, recurrent catheter malfunction, and somebody with a very bad cardiopulmonary status where they really couldn't afford to have that clot break off, I guess that's sort of the the message that I want to convey. You really just have to look at the case and look at, you know, whether or not you can get away with just pulling the catheter and heparinizing them, or do you really need to go through this entire process? Right on, man. Well, look, this was awesome. Thank you for joining us and, and thanks for going through this with us. This is, you know, something new for me. And thanks to our listeners for tuning into another one of these and we'll catch you on the next one. Perfect. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Dond, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. Hey everyone, it's Aaron Fritz and Chris Beck. We've been working on something new and exciting for our colleagues and trainees. Quick story, last year I had read somewhere that the volume of medical information doubles every 73 days. 73 days. It hit me that it's really difficult to keep up and it got me thinking about Backtable. We are getting good practical knowledge from our podcast, but there's room for improvement in them as an educational resource. We felt like we owed it to you, our audience, to build on the podcast to address this need. And that's what we're doing with Backtable Plus. Exactly, Aaron. Backtable Plus is for doctors who are seeking to elevate their practice and sharpen their skills by learning from their peers. We've created focused, curated courses on interventional and endovascular procedures vetted by Backtable's network of practicing experts, and we're really proud to be able to share that with you all. It's live now at backtable.com. Tap the link and just click on courses at the top. Yeah, in addition to getting this information in a concise course format, you get CME for it. I figured we're educating ourselves constantly online. It sure would be nice to get credit for it. Partnering with CME if I made this happen. There are three years worth of CME credits already live in the platform today. These courses are live right now. Find the link or type in backtable.com 
and click the tab that says courses and that's it. We also made a mobile app and you can grab that from either Apple or Android's app store as well. Couple more things. From now until SIR in late March, users will get 50% off of the annual subscription, a great way to use your education funds. And the first 25 physicians to sign up, you guessed it, a signature limited edition Back to O Plus hoodie. Only a few of these, so get them while you can. Can't wait to see you there. Just go to backtable.com and click on courses at the top.